The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jakobas, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. And that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus's inner circle of the 12 disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. 
And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience, life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. 
Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. The Bible reading today comes from James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever seen those news stories or or even spoken to people that have just had a a horrible time? They've had their house broken into or or a pet's died or or they crashed their car or it broke down or or they lost something valuable or had a terrible diagnosis from a doctor or, or all of the above. You know, and they're recounting stories of woe to you, this happened, this happened, and your heart goes out to them as they tell you story after story of the hard things they're facing in life, and their life seems to be so hopeless. Their situations have kicked them in the guts, and they're down and out for the count and still getting kicked. We've all come across people like that, who have shared stories with us like that, or seen these stories on the news or, or a current affair or those sorts of places. But then occasionally they continue their story and then they tell you how some kind person, maybe even a complete stranger, did something to show kindness and love to them. And then they say something like, they restored my faith in humanity. What that person did gives me hope Again, when it's all said and done, it's actually fairly easy to be people who bring hope to others, to be people who carry the hope of the gospel with us and bring that hope to people around us. Look what James says in chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. This verse quotes for us the apex of kingdom rules for ethical conduct. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law of love. It follows the greatest law, which is to love God. And the next is to to love others. And when we love others, the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is on display. Today, as we go through James chapter 2, our series titled Bring Hope, We're going to see how, in fact, love is hope. In this passage, James continues in verse 12 and says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act 
as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. See, true freedom is to obey God and do what pleases him. There is a wonderful jazz musician, and his name is James Morrison. There's another James Morrison who's also musical. This James Morrison is the fat guy that plays the trumpet, though. And the fat guy that plays the trumpet, James Morrison, as he self-describes himself, so it's okay, we're all friends, he is a Christian, and he is a wonderful man of God. He, He put out this album a little while ago, The Gospel According to Groove. He's a jazz musician, and I love jazz. But he's got this one track on on this album that explains to us how sort of Christianity works a bit. And he basically likens jazz and the rules that go with jazz to the Bible and the rules that go with living a life as a Christian. And what he says is that within music and even jazz, there are certain rules. And those rules make music sound nice. And there is a great freedom within those rules to express yourself. But as soon as you go outside of those rules, you create a horrible, chaotic sound that is just disgusting. Now, jazz bends the rules the most of any genre of music, maybe other than screamo. But anyway... Um, and, and so this, this, this track says that the real freedom is actually found in following the rules. Within those rules, there is the greatest freedom and your life, you know, when we follow the rules that God sets out for us in Scripture, there is great freedom to live an abundant and successful life and make beautiful music to God, just as you can physically with music by following the rules. And that's what this sort of says here. The, the, the true freedom is freedom to obey God and do what pleases him. The law of Christ provides freedom from sin. And that freedom from sin is through the gospel. And in the context of what James has been talking about through chapter 2, which we'll cover shortly, he's also, I think, suggesting that God's law will set the, the poor free from prejudice, oppression, and exploitation because we are all going to be judged. And so that freedom that we have in the gospel should bring hope as we love those around us, particularly the poor. He says in verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How often have you you know, heard the, the slant against Christians. They're just a bunch of judgmental people. Wouldn't it be nice if they said they're just a bunch of merciful people? James sums up the implications of not showing love, of not bringing the hope of the gospel with us as we deal with others, particularly the poor, of judging other people. Those consequences are that we will be judged. We know from reading the scriptures that many times God's nature is revealed and that he will judge us justly and according to our action. So what you do to others will be done to you in the judgment. We will be rewarded for good and punished for evil. That's how a just judge works. This verse ends with that wonderful one-liner, mercy triumphs over judgment. In this context, it's clear that this does not mean that God's mercy is, 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 is extended to believers at the judgment rather believers acts of mercy like carrying caring for the poor and hurting will mean that we're vindicated at 
our judgment. See, mercy was a central Old Testament requirement for dealing with the poor. And likewise, mercy is a requirement of believers in the New Testament or we too will experience God's judgment rather than his mercy. I've heard people, though, try and use this passage to try and justify a stance that God will be merciful to all people when it comes to the day of judgment. That doesn't quite sit right with me because, you know, it does say here, mercy triumphs over judgment. And their argument, they say, so, so that, you know, because God is a loving God, he wants all people to enjoy eternity with him because he is love, you know. So how could God, who is love, who says mercy triumphs over judgment, how could he judge people and send them to hell? That's not in his nature. We, we just read the passage, mercy triumphs over judgment. That, 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 that doesn't sit right with me, that view of this passage. See, what this doesn't say is that people will not face judgment because they'll receive God's mercy. What this actually says is that we are to be merciful as we deal with others because God has been merciful with us. Remember, this letter was written to believers. It was written to give us a kick up the backside to behave as we should as carriers of hope. It was not written to counter the message of the gospel, that we are all sinners and are in need of a saviour. If this passage was supposed to mean that God will be merciful to every person and not hold them to account for their actions, then why did Jesus need to die? If there is no judgment from God of our actions, if everyone will be given mercy regardless, then Jesus' death was a waste and was completely unnecessary. And so we know that this is not what James was meaning when he wrote that mercy triumphs over judgment. It wasn't a statement about God towards us. It was a statement about us towards others. So tracking back a a, a bit and picking up the concept of the law that we'll be judged by, there's the law of liberty, the law that gives us freedom to obey God and do what pleases him. James highlights that if we break one part of the law, then we break the whole law. Look at this passage, Verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So we see how important mercy is. And it's clear from this passage that James believes that any infraction constitutes a breaking of the law as a whole. Jesus said, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5.18 So James points out that that favoritism makes us inochos. Not nachos, although they are delicious, but inochos, which is the Greek legal term for being liable or guilty. And that means that that term is applied in the sense of being liable or guilty of the whole. Inotchos is the term used. Liable or guilty of the whole. And that's only breaking one part. So we should speak and act as people who would be called to account of our actions before God. And hopefully we'll be able to say that we acted with love and mercy towards others as carriers of hope. Now, loving people that look like, smell like, and act like us is very easy. It really is. And sometimes it's actually joyful. A joyful delight to love people who are just like you and I. It's fun, right? But what about people who don't look like us, who don't smell like us, who don't dress like us, who don't act like us, who don't talk like us? It gets a little bit harder to love them 
because it doesn't quite come as naturally. But they too need hope. They too need love. They too need to meet Jesus. And James addresses this very issue of how easy it is to love people like us and who might benefit us in contrast to those unlike us and unlikely to benefit us. We heard in our Bible reading that as carriers of hope, we should not be showing partiality towards people. Favouring one person over another is not to be done. There is great equality among the people of God. The contrast that James gives is the rich and the poor, the well-clothed and the not well-clothed. And that's a contrast that still exists in our world today. There is no place for prejudice in the life of faith. We shouldn't be showing favoritism towards any group of people based on their status in society. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? James declares that the poor have a special place in God's economy of salvation. They are rich in an eternal sense because they are heirs of the kingdom, just like you and I. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a great source of hope in the enduring challenges of poverty. So what does this look like for us today? Well, I think that we're going to start seeing more people come and interact with the activities and events of our church going forward. I can guarantee you that not everyone is going to be from a white, upper-middle-class background like majority of us are here today. People will be coming to us as we interact more in our community, as we invite our community to, to receive hope and, and to hear the gospel message. I've put pictures of lovely, smiling family you know, families on the screen. They might not all be smiling. They might not all be so lovely. So we've been begun putting together our strategic plan for, that's going to carry us for the next three years. And in that plan are many things that are going to involve us reaching out to our community. We have some family fun days in the works that will be an open invitation for our community to come along and be blessed in a safe and fun environment, building on our already good reputation amongst families in our town and in increasing our rapport with families. So hopefully these families will feel loved as we carry the hope of the gospel with us and minister and interact with these families. They may not look like you. These families may not smell like you. They may not dress like you. They might not have the same values as you. They may not speak like you. They may not believe like you, but they need the hope of Jesus just like you. So our job as carriers of hope is to bring hope to our community because, as James says, faith without works is dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The basis of salvation is grace alone through faith with works not the basis, but the necessary result of salvation. If we never do anything, then what use are we? 
if we never do anything, if we never display the fruit of the Spirit in practical ways, then one might have to question if we are really saved. We can all speak words that sound holy, that sound lovely, that sound like they should if we're Christians. But James is saying, don't tell me, show me. Show me how you are bringing hope. Show me how it is different and how it matters that you are a carrier of hope into our community. So he gives the example of hungry and poorly clothed people. That if we just give them lip service, we're actually refusing to help them. Which I think is even worse than just doing nothing. He then also throws a few examples in for us of people who demonstrated their faith through their actions. He gives us Abraham. Now, this seems like a pretty easy example. You know, Father Abraham, who birthed the nation of Israel... Man of faith, man of God. He could have gone through uh, countless stories of Abraham's life and, and, and picked, you know, cherry picked the best bits, right? But what does he do? He gives us the part of Abraham's story that I find most interesting to be used to demonstrate this here. It's not that Abraham believed the Lord, as it says in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. No, James doesn't bring that up. The story that James pulls out is of him being called upon to sacrifice his son, his promised son, to God on an altar. That's a pretty messed up dedication service if I've ever seen one. But James says that, that Abraham was justified by his works. And that seems very challenging in light of Paul's teaching on justification by grace through faith alone. See, the primary way in which Paul uses the word justify emphasizes the sense of being declared righteous by God through faith on the basis of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, whereas the primary way that James uses the word justify, um, like here in James 2.21, seems to emphasize the way in which works demonstrate that someone has been justified as evidenced by the good works that the person does. Full-grown and genuine faith is seen in the good deeds it produces. And that's what we saw from from Abraham. And James also uses the story of Rahab. Now, Rahab was a prostitute. And we find her story in Joshua chapter 2. And I want us to all turn there to Joshua chapter 2. So where we are in this story is that the Jewish people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were led by Moses. They then stall at the entrance to God's promised land and wander the desert for 40 years before they take up the challenge again. And this time, led by Joshua, are about to cross into the promised land. But Joshua sends out two spies ahead of them. So I'm going to start Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. 
And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives are your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land You have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we'll be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So Joshua, he then, he receives this report from the spies. He crosses into the promised land and takes possession of it with great victory. So we see at some personal risk. We see that Rahab hid the Jewish spies from her own people and then lowered them on a rope so they could escape. She becomes a model of faith completed in works. A, a prostitute is justified by her works based on the faith she has in God, having only heard of the reputation of God. She shows remarkable awareness of Israel's history and of the Lord's intention to give Israel the land of Canaan. And her confession is filled with the language and theology of the Old Testament law, particularly Deuteronomy, and echoes the start of the book of Joshua. And it would appear that her confession implies spiritual conversion and recognition of the supreme power of Israel's God. And this would definitely be demonstrated through her later integration into Israel. So it demonstrates her genuine conversion. She's put her faith in action. Now, I'm not sure about you, but they weren't showing partiality to her. How how would we respond, though, if, if a prostitute came amongst us and at great personal risk, acted out of a faith in God in such a practical way. 
I'd hope that we would also make a promise of acceptance and thankfulness for the work that God had done in their life. But I don't know, maybe we'd be too judgmental. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James finishes this section by reiterating his point that faith without deeds is dead. Now, I might have mentioned previously I worked in a cemetery, and it's pretty easy to tell a dead body from a live one. They are certainly not just sleeping in that box, no matter how good the makeup artist or mortician is. The body without the spirit is dead, so faith without putting it into action is also dead. So you've been challenged today to see right from James that that love is hope. We should be loving those around us. We should be bringing hope to others by, by how we treat those around us who are different to us and particularly those who are poor. And it is important that in whatever activity we take towards different groups of people that we remain balanced in our approach to caring for them. You know, I've seen churches fall into the trap of, of being so focused on caring for just one specific need group, they end up neglecting so many others, even those already part of their family. And I know that we cannot do everything. I don't think we'll even get everything done that we've planned next year. We might get even more done. But I know that there is more that we can do to reach our community with the hope of the gospel. And that's what these congregational meetings are about on Thursday. That's what they're all about. They're about developing a plan to take the hope of the gospel into the northeast in practical ways, to share the love that Christ has bestowed upon us with others and so bring the hope of the gospel. So I want us all to come along on Thursday, either 7 p.m. or 10 a.m. That's right, 10 a.m. or 7 p.m. And to, to take a look at the starts of our strategic plan and that the guiding team and the leadership team have been putting together and working on and to contribute your thoughts and ideas on ways that we can refine what's there as well as ways we can increase our effectiveness and activities to bring hope to the North East. Now, I've loved going through this passage today in James. I love writing the sermon because I love that conviction that comes when you read the Bible when you read the words of scripture that just sort of like stab in and like twist just that little bit, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe I am being a bit too judgmental. Like, oh, yeah, maybe I, I do show, show favoritism or, or partiality. Maybe I do love people who are like me way too easy and really struggle to love people who are a bit different. I don't know about you, but... I struggle with people that don't smell nice. You know, if I've been working hard out in the out in my farm, I struggle to love myself when I don't smell nice. But that that, that might be part of our future. We might be a, a more messy bunch of people. Our family might grow and include people who aren't as beautiful as you are. But maybe they are even more beautiful on the inside. Maybe they've had a tough life and so... We've, we've had a privilege, a fairly privileged, most of us have a fairly privileged life. We've been, you know, fairly successful. We've all, you know, if I, I saw something this morning that if most of us are in probably the, the wealthiest 75% of the entire global population because look where we are, look what we're wearing, look what we ate today for breakfast or had the luxury to choose not to eat anything for breakfast. We are blessed people. We are a loved people. It's about time that we put some legs on that love. It's about time that we 
We shared that hope in practical ways. That's what Thursday's about. Let's plan this out well so that we can resource it effectively, so that we can put legs on love and actually take hope out into our community and not just expect that people will, will come along here and interact with us right here, but we need to go and share that hope. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we're convicted by your words this morning. We are challenged to love more. Lord, there is this inherent bias that exists within us to love people just like us very easily. And so we see that our family this morning is very similar. Lord, I pray that our family would grow in diversity as we take your hope with us into our community here in the northeast. Lord, I pray for these meetings on Thursday that, Lord, you would be with us as we, we look at, at how we can do this practically. Lord, I pray you would guide our thoughts, you would guide our discussions, and that this document that is produced from these meetings and that we, we, we settle on would be one that, that brings you honour, that glorifies you, and that helps us put legs on the love that we have for you and for your creation and for your world. And Lord, that, that would help us share the hope of the gospel. So go before us, I pray, as a church. And Lord, as individuals, may we take up those opportunities to, to, as carriers of hope to share your love with other people. Lord, may we, as carriers of the hope of the gospel, when we see a need, may we meet a need. When we see someone struggling, may we lighten that burden. Lord, may we invest our time our resources, our energy, our efforts into practically showing the love and the hope of the gospel to others in our spheres of personal influence. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.